0: Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give each one the opportunity to make sure they're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come together as a body of believers in freedom in this nation, that we still have the opportunity to uh, meet and to freely teach your word and proclaim the gospel. Father, we pray for us tonight that as we study the word that we might be able to focus and concentrate on what uh, God the Holy Spirit has recorded for us and what he has to teach us this evening, that we might be receptive to the application, thinking through important issues that relate to our Christian life. And we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter fourteen, and we're continuing to talk about the issue of the weaker brother versus the stronger brother. The background here is as how do we deal with issues? How do we make decisions about issues that are not necessarily uh, that are not moral issues in the Christian life? They're neither prohibited. Uh, By God, nor commanded by God. And it's amazing how many different uh, activities in life are not specifically or directly addressed by Scripture. And yet, most of us form very firm convictions about whether or not uh, these activities are something we should participate in as a believer. And if uh, last time I pointed out uh, the situation that occurred. Uh, many years ago when I worked at, at Camp Anil running into a group of Christians coming down from Grand Rapids School of the Bible and Music that we thought were legalistic. And and often that's what happens is that people identify, some Christians will identify another group as legalistic when the other group is just being a little more uh, rigid in their precision of application. Uh, legalism is one of those funny terms that is often Used and abused, legalism technically, in a biblical sense is either adding works to the gospel that that in order to be saved, you not only believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins but you have to do something else uh, either on the front end or the back end by the front end, I mean you not only have to repent of sin and clean up your life, you have to stop smoking, drinking, dancing, going to movies or whatever, plus Jesus. You have to change your your moral behavior and trust in Jesus in order to be saved. Sometimes in some denominations it's believe in Jesus and be baptized. In some situations it's believe and be a member of our denomination. But the Scripture says it's faith alone in Christ alone. So that's one form of legalism. The way it expressed itself in the New Testament most frequently was a group of of Jewish background Christians who insisted that obedience to the Mosaic Law specifically in terms of, for for men in terms of circumcision was, uh, was necessary in order to be truly saved and to have a relationship with God. The second way in which legalism entered in was the idea that you had to have a moral life, you had to obey the law, you had to be circumcised in order to be sanctified, in order for your, in order to grow as a Christian. That if there were certain things that were not present in your uh, Christian life, then you were not really living like a Christian. And these were things that were added that were not specifically uh, prohibited or commanded in the Scripture. Sometimes we speak of them as gray areas, but I don't think that's a good term because I don't think they're necessarily gray. There are non-moral behaviors that are not addressed in Scripture. But groups come together, and some people will make uh, choices, and then they expect everybody else to go along with their choices. And so <clears throat> the scripture addresses these in terms of the weaker uh, the weaker brother and the stronger brother. And I remember I tried to find this article online, but apparently they don't have all of Moody Monthly's previous articles archived online yet. I tried to uh, uh, locate this the other day. I remember about the time I went to seminary a little before, there was a an article in Moody's uh, monthly publication called Moody Monthly, always thought that was a little too much creativity there, Um, called Grow Up Weaker Brother, which made a good point that uh, there are a lot of Christians who uh, uh, hold to certain dogmatic positions related to these non-moral areas that they believe they are moral for one reason or another, but they're not addressed by Scripture, and they continue to hold them even though they they ought to know better, even though they have reached a level of spiritual knowledge. So there's really a third group here. It's not just the weaker brother and the stronger brother, uh, the mature brother, but I'm going to add a third category that is not addressed in either the 1 Corinthians 8 passage that deals with this issue, or the or the Romans 14 and 15 passage, and that's the legalistic or the Pharisaical brother, who has made his come to his convictions about these areas that are not addressed in Scripture, and then wants to impose those upon everybody else. So there's really that, that third category. And you often find this. I remember Dr. Ryrie used to uh, use the illustration when talking about uh, the uh, injunctions in Scripture not to put a stumbling block in front of a weaker brother. He used to make the point that, a weak, that in order for something to be a stumbling block, the, the other person has to be moving forward so they can stumble over it. And a lot of times you have people who aren't growing, they're just being critical. And so that, that again is, uh, in, in Dr. Ryrie's terminology, a recognition of this third category that exists out there other than just the weaker brother and the stronger brother. So Paul gives a command here at the beginning to receive or accept into fellowship the one who is weak in faith, The word there to receive is the word proslambano, which means to accept into one's company or fellowship, to welcome them as part of your congregation, part of your fellowship, and not making things that are uh, somewhat maybe uh, unaddressed by Scripture as to whether or not as a a, uh, test of fellowship. So he says, receive the one who is weak in faith. And I pointed out last time the word here, the verb that's used here, neo means to be without strength. And it can refer to being without strength physically in the sense of being ill or being without strength spiritually in the sense of being spiritually immature or unable to go forward because of difficulties in in life, so we are to receive the one who is weak we are to accept him into fellowship, and in contrast, we are not to dispute so as we're moving through this verse, the word here for dispute is the word diacrisis, which means to argue, to debate, to quarrel uh, over something um, and actually add a quarrel into the abbreviation on the next slide not to quarrel so he's saying don't quarrel literally it's in the plural if you notice it's a an accusative feminine plural so he's saying not to have quarrels plural over dialogismos which is a word for debating uh expressing your opinions getting involved in in uh in, in issues where you may have di- legitimate differences of opinion but the scripture doesn't specifically address address those issues so he's saying receive the one who is 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 weak or immature and do not get in, get engaged in quarrels over uh, over opinions doubtful things is a doubtful translation it doesn't say anything about, about doubt. The dealagismos just means ideas or opinions or topics of debate or discussion. So uh, he's saying don't get involved in quarrels over, uh, over opinions as opposed to things that are clearly stated as absolutes uh, in, in Scripture. Now, as we look at this passage, we have to understand what it means, uh, who who these weak believers are in the context of Romans. And as we look at this, there are several positions that have been suggested, and I just want to talk through them briefly You may run into them, they may be a position taken in whatever study Bible that you've got in front of you, you may find discover them in some some other writing, but I'll just briefly uh, talk about them. The first view is that the week were mainly Gentile Christians who abstained from meat and perhaps wine, particularly on certain fast days under the influence of certain pagan religions. Now the problem with this is that when we look uh, further down into the passage for example if you look down to Romans 14:14 14, 14, Paul says I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself but to him who considers anything to be unclean to him it is unclean and then he goes on in the next passage to talk about food So he introduces the category of clean and unclean when he's talking about this, this food. The issue here is really dietary. So that wasn't a problem with the Gentiles. Clean and unclean indicate that this is a Jewish issue. This is, there was a a large segment of the Roman church were Jewish background believers who had accepted Jesus as Messiah and that 's the seems to be what the real issue is here, so it wouldn 't be uh, Gentile Christians here causing the problem now in in a, excuse me in First Corinthians eight, you had a slightly different problem of variation where the meat the food that was being eat, eaten was food that might have been previously uh, sacrificed to idols or offered to idols. And so that violated the conscience of, of, of some believers. So the first option that, you, that that is suggested here doesn't work. The second option says the weak were Christians, perhaps both Jewish and Gentile, who practice an ascetic lifestyle for reasons that we cannot determine. Uh, this is just sort of leaping at a conclusion that they were just being ascetic. But you don't really have asceticism as a major issue in the early church. So that's probably not uh, not the right option. And the third option says the weak were mainly Jewish Christians who observed certain practices derived from the Mosaic Law out of a concern to establish righteousness before God, now, the real issue in this third option is that last line that they were seeking to establish righteousness through their obedience to the dietary laws of of the Mosaic law, the Torah. Now, those laws are described by the in the Old Testament by the Hebrew word kasher, which is where we get our word kosher and also the the variant of that which is the laws of kashrut which is a plural which has to do with determining what what is clean what is not clean what can be eaten what cannot be eaten according to the dietary rules and laws of uh, of leviticus now we saw last time i looked at acts Acts chapter 15, when we talked about the Jerusalem council. But if we go back to Acts chapter 10, this was a situation where where Peter was on the rooftop at the home of Simon the Tanner, and he is in prayer, and God the Holy Spirit gave him a vision. Uh, as an apostle, the apostles were still uh, receiving visions and dreams and direct revelation from God because the New Testament canon had not been written yet. And so he sees this this huge tablecloth sheet descending from heaven that had all of this these animals on it, all of this food that was prohibited by the laws of Kashrut. There were scallops and oysters and lobster and shrimp and catfish and and pork, bacon. All of these uh, all of these things that were there, and God said to you know gives him directions to take and eat. And he wouldn't he he said, No, no, Lord, nothing unclean has ever passed my lips. There's this self-righteous uh, trend in Peter that we see there. And three times the Lord says, Take and eat, and finally he makes the point to, to Peter, what I've declared to be clean uh, is clean. Don't don't separate from it. And immediately there's a knock on the door that these messengers from Cornelius had come. The reason is that that in a Jewish Gentile environment where you had Jews that were observant to the law, and you even see this to some degree today with those who are orthodox and eat according to the, the uh, laws of uh, Kashrut, that they don't go to the homes of Gentiles to eat because it's they're very strict in how food meat has to be uh, slaughtered and how food has to be prepared. And you can't use uh, dishes or pots and pans that have, had meat on them, chicken or beef at the, and and also dairy there's a complete separation of uh, of dairy and meat and The reason is there's an injunction in the Mosaic law that a really has a background to to ritual and the paganism of the Canaanites, but you weren't were not or you were prohibited from boiling a a kid. A baby goat in its mother's milk, or a calf in its in its mother's milk, and and this had to do with certain uh, pagan practices. So, in order to make sure that you're not mixing <clears throat> the meat of a calf of a of a uh, 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 with the milk of the mother, they have a complete separation of meat and dairy. So, you can't go to a McDonald's and in Israel, and get a cheeseburger because you can't mix dairy and meat. You can't have a hamburger and a milkshake because you can't mix meat and and milk at all. And even in the home, because there's pot, there's a possibility that if you have a pot and <clears throat> or a skillet and you're going to uh, broil a steak in that skillet. Then, there may be a couple of molecules that don 't quite get cleaned in your dishwasher, and then the next day you use milk in that same pot. Now you have run the possibility that 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 molecule of that meat might have come uh, from a calf, and the milk comes from the mother, so you can 't run that risk so there 's one complete set of uh, dairy dishes and one complete set of uh, meat dishes and and meat pots and pans and utensils and all that is kept completely separate and you either have a dairy meal or you have a a meat meal one or the other and you go to certain hotels in Israel that follow, that that will cater more to a Jewish clientele especially an observant clientele and their main kitchen will be a meat kitchen or a dairy kitchen. The hotel where we're going to stay in our Israel trip this year uh, is the Inbal, and their main kitchen is a dairy kitchen. First time I took a group there, we were there five or six nights, I learned that that Americans like a little more variety in in their diet. Pasta and fish can only go so far. So uh, this year we're, and i 've stayed there a couple of times since then and I discovered that the um, that the uh, uh, room service kitchen is a meat kitchen so they, they these differences though truly matter and they mattered especially um, at the in the first century because you didn't have Conservative Jews and reformed Jews and non-observant Jews—everybody's eating according to the laws, uh, uh, the dietary laws of Leviticus—and so Jews would never eat in the home of a Gentile. You just wouldn't ever do it because you weren't sure if you the, the food there was done, or was whether the animals were killed according to the, the uh, proper laws of Kashrut or. Or, uh, if they were prepared according to the proper laws of Kashrut. So this would be a problem in a congregation where, uh, you wouldn't have any fellowship between the Jews and the Christians outside of the church. The Jews would not go to their homes. So Paul is having to address this, this particular issue. And it's not based on this concept of trying to be, to gain righteousness. And this was addressed back in Romans 10 verses 3 and 4, where Paul does talk about a specific group of Jews, but these are unbelievers, these are not believers, who were ignorant of God's righteousness, he says, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul had already addressed that, and in this context, he's not talking about believers who are wrong he's who are and that's what if they were trying to gain righteousness through the dietary law they would be wrong it would be a violation of, of of revelation violation of scripture so he's addressing the weaker brothers who are doing something that's not prohibited from scripture so the fourth option that you may find is the idea that the weak were mainly jewish christians who had ascetic trends when they were blending or assimilating mosaic uh, traditions plus pagan traditions. And there was some of that going on, but that's probably not the main issue here. The fifth is, uh, option is that the weak were mainly Jewish Christians who, like some of the Corinthians, believed that it was wrong to eat meat that was sold in the marketplace and was probably tainted by idolatry. Again, uh, verse 14, dealing with the clean versus unclean issue, would negate that as, a, as an explanation. And so we're left with the sixth option, that the weak were mainly Jewish Christians who refrained from certain kinds of food and observe certain days out of a continuing loyalty to the Mosaic Law. They're not looking at the Mosaic Law as a means of righteousness for salvation or as a means of righteousness for sanctification. That would be wrong. Paul would have blasted them for that as he does in Galatians as adding works to either salvation or sanctification. So we see that the problem, according to Romans 14, 14, is related to the Mosaic dietary laws. Now we go back and we look at verse 2. Paul says, "...for one believes he may eat all things," But he who is weak eats only vegetables. So what you have is the, uh, this gives us an indication of who the stronger believer is. The stronger believer has knowledge. He's informed. He's studied the word. He's come to a mature understanding of the word and a mature conviction about what he should and should not do in terms of his Christian life in areas that are not addressed by by the word of God that are neither prohibited or endorsed. So, on the one hand, he says you, he, one says you can eat everything. That would include all of the things prohibited by the Mosaic law. But the other one eats only vegetables. Now, if I were an observant Jew at this time and you were a Gentile and you invited me to my, ha- to your house for dinner, I might avoid the meat that's on the plate and just eat the vegetables. So that would be one way to where I could eat at your home and not violate the tradition of the fathers. And that's what they're concerned with here is the tradition of the fathers just being consistent with that out of respect. That's their culture. That's their background. And so that's what what they believe. Now here I've developed a, a little bit of a chart to explain this difference between the weaker brother on the left, the mature believer in the middle, and then the legalist or the pharisaical type on the right. Notice both the weaker brother and the mature brother are operating on humility. They're teachable. They're willing to have their opinions changed by the word of God. But the legalist is arrogant And they have come to their conclusions regarding these areas that are not addressed in Scripture, and they're seeking to impose their conclusions on other people. The weaker brother, though, is, looking at the second line, is uncertain about whether or not he should participate in these activities or whether or not he should eat this food. He is an immature believer. He's unlearned. He's untaught. Uh, The mature believer, though, has come to a thoughtful conviction. He's thought through the issues, and he's come to specific conclusions about what he's going to do in his life, Uh, not necessarily imposing that on anybody else, but these are the convictions that he's come to. The Pharisee has also come to thoughtful convictions, but he's trying to impose it on everybody else as well. The weaker brother is uninformed. He's weak because he hasn't been taught. The mature believer, though, understands divine viewpoint, but he's open to correction in case there's a change. Now, that's one of the principles that we'll see is when it comes to these so-called doubtful things, these, these areas that are not specifically addressed in Scripture, there aren't any absolutes. You may reach a conclusion that it's okay, for example, the classic that uh, example that everybody talks about, in America at least, has to do with drinking or consuming alcoholic beverages. That's one of the more interesting case studies in American culture. Back in the early uh, 19th century, this became a major issue in, in American evangelicalism. And American evangelicalism... Uh, was influenced by post I mean post-millennial view uh, uh, of history. And that was the idea that, that and, and it was also influenced by the idea that people are not inherently bad. Uh, they, they minimized, by the time you get into the Second Great Awakening, they were minimizing the doctrine of original sin and total depravity so that men are no longer basically evil, they're basically good. And if a man is basically good, then he's perfectible. If he's basically evil, he's not perfectible. All you can hope for is something that's, that's, that's moral, but he's still going to make mistakes. Well, if human beings are not totally depraved and they're perfectible, then society is perfectible. So the only thing that keeps us from having an America that is truly utopic is that we have to get rid of these social sins. And this idea that we have today where we're looking at social engineering has its roots in the the self-righteousness that came out of, in many cases, a works-oriented gospel that was emphasized by some segments of the Second Great Awakening. Now, there were... Several social evils that they believed needed to be addressed. And if you could get these social evils addressed and, and changed, then we would have a utopic society. And so, and this theology really took root more in the North than in the South. And, and it was motivated by the arrogance that came out of a combination of of the uh, new divinity theology and the new England theology that came out of the second great awakening up in uh, New England specifically and a lot of this was uh, was emphasized in the teaching of an evangelist at that time by the name of Charles Grandison Finney and Finney didn't even believe in substitutionary atonement uh Finney believed in the perfection of man and he was considered to be the Billy Graham of his day he founded Oberlin uh, college and Oberlin Seminary, and uh, it was the fountainhead for the whole abolitionist movement because they believed that the first and greatest cultural sin in America was slavery, and we needed to get rid of slavery. They didn't really have uh, a concern for the individual slaves. They were very idealistic, so the idea is to get rid of the the social sin and they really didn't have practical working solutions for dealing with what would happen once you once you freed or liberated or emancipated all all of the slaves and this became a characteristic uh, cultural distinction between the north and the south i'm talking broad generalizations here and that is that in the north there was this concern for idealism to perfect or bring in this utopia and and uh, they would often focus on this ideal and ignore the, the problems it would create for the individuals, so often in the north it 's been said that they would would love the blacks as a group, but individually they would treat them like dirt in the south it, that was reversed they would uh, they would treat the, the, the groups maybe as individu- as, a, as a whole in less than uh, honorable ways but then they would love the individual. They would treat the individual with, with respect because of the influence of biblical, uh, biblical Christianity. And so arrogance was present in both the North and the South and manifested itself in, di- in different ways. But what happens in, 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 in America as a whole is first you have the identification of the problem of, of uh, slavery. Get rid of slavery, we can move on to the next one, which is basically what happened. And Reconstruction came along after the Civil War, but the, the, the real, the real arrogant radicals in the North were no longer concerned about blacks. They were moving on to the next issue. What was the next issue? The next issue was temperance. The next issue was getting rid of alcohol. You even had, uh, uh, you know, places like Dodge City by the, 1880s became completely dry and all of this led eventually to that to that massive and and failed experiment of prohibition in the early 20th century. You also had the issue of women's rights grew out of this same era and child labor laws. And it's not that some of these things were not evil, but it was the motivation behind it culturally that if we could get rid of these things then we could perfect and reform America and bring in a utopic society. So it was a right thing, perhaps in many ways, done a wrong way for wrong reasons, and that's what led to a collapse. So American Christians have always had this, this problem with, with alcohol. In the early fifties, not long after World War II, in the early fifties, when you still had a, a dominant Christian and biblical influence in this country, Christianity Today, which was at that time very very early in its publication career, was the, the, one of the major uh, magazines for the evangelical world, and they conducted a survey among Christians that came out. Uh, I forget the exact numbers, but it was overwhelming. It was like close to 90% of all Christians believed it was sinful for a Christian to partake of alcoholic beverages, and then um 30 years later in the mid 1980s they decided to conduct the same survey again and it had, the numbers completely reversed themselves almost the same percentage that had uh, thought al- alcohol was a sin in 1950 thought that it was okay by the mid 1980s just a uh, complete 180 90 to 92% by the mid 80s believed that it was okay for a christian to partake of alcoholic beverages so you see just this this complete complete reversal but there are pre- people who have problems with alcohol they have problems with alcohol some folks have a problem that's that's physical and they have a reaction to alcohol that can make them extremely addictive to alcohol. But that's a very small percentage. Other people just have a psychological addiction uh, to alcohol. And this is why one church, you've heard me tell this story before. I went with a friend to Believer's Chapel in Dallas, Texas when I was first in seminary. Went there on a Sunday night, which is they had communion every Sunday night like a brethren church. And we had an argument on the way home because... Uh, I had grape juice and he had wine and said, That was wine. I said, No, it wasn't. It was grape juice. And for several months we argued back and forth whether that was wine or grape juice before we found out that it was, they had both in the tray. They had grape juice in the outer two rings and wine in the inner uh, ring so that. Uh, people could choose one or the other. If you had a problem with alcohol, then you could take the grape juice. If you felt like you wanted to be like the New Testament church and have wine, then you could take wine. So we were making something available for everyone. But the you have a lot of Christians who would impose their view of alcohol on other Christians. You can't drink at all. You can't smoke. You can't go to movies. You can't watch certain television shows. So... They came to a thoughtful conviction, but then they imposed it on everybody else. Uh, uh, and they weren't open to any correction. So we see that both the weaker brethren and the mature believer are oriented to grace, recognizing that, that whatever we do is oriented to the Father. But because the weaker brethren's uninformed, he doesn't know how to, uh, handle the situation. But the legalist or the Pharisee is works oriented. Uh, the weaker brother and the mature brother are easily influenced, excuse me, the weaker brother is easily influenced, but I didn't get that quite finished. Um, the mature believer and the legalist Pharisee were not, they've come to a firm conviction, so they're not easily, easily influenced. And we'll see that, uh, these characteristics as we go through the passage. So you have on the one hand the strong, mature believer who believes he can eat all things in contrast to the weaker brother who eats only only vegetables. And then in verse 3, we have the command, let him who eats, and this is the uh, verb, it's a present active imperative. Uh, It's a third-person singular. We don't really have third-person singular imperatives in English. We just have second-person imperatives. Uh, But this is called... This is a third-person type imperative, which means let him do this, let her do that. And so it's uh, let, him who, let not him who eats despise. This is your, your, your main verb here, to despise or reject with contempt the weaker brother. And just look at him and say, you don't think you ought to drink or you don't think you ought to eat that? Well, you're just a fool you know we're not to adopt that kind of an attitude a judgmental attitude about someone who isn't sure if they should part- participate in one activity or another and then in the next line let him who does not eat ju- let him who does not eat and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats for god has received him so we this is another application of Matthew uh, 7, judge not that ye be not judged. We are not to f- condemn another person. It's not talking about evaluation, it's talking about a critical condemnation of somebody else. And the reason that's given is because God has received him. That's that same word that you use at the very beginning of verse 1 to receive in fellowship. So God has accepted this person in fellowship in terms of eternal fellowship. He's part of the body of Christ, and so we should not be uh, judgmental towards that person. Which brings Paul to the point of raising the question, uh, who are you then to judge another's servant? We're We're all servants of the Lord. So if I'm a servant and you're a servant, it's not my place to judge you in terms of how you think you are best obeying the Lord in areas that are not specifically addressed in Scripture. So he asked the question, who are you to judge or condemn another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. This is the principle. There are many areas in life that are not specifically addressed in scripture. That's an important term because there are areas where we may have convictions. We may try to support them in some sense biblically, but it's not clearly and specifically stated in scripture to be something to, uh, to not do or something to do. So we are to make a decision in terms of what we think is best in terms of how we are serving the Lord as a servant of God. It is between each individual believer and the Lord, and we need to let them make that decision. Now, over the course of time, we may change our views on things. We may change certain circumstances. Even within a a particular day or week, we may choose not to do something one day, and do it the next day, depending on who is around. We may go out to, to to lunch or to dinner with someone, and we know that they have a problem with alcohol. Or maybe we know that they're diabetic, and they have a problem with sugar. I'm, so we're, we're not going to order a dessert that might tempt them. And, and put that temptation in front of them because that would cause them to have a problem. We're going to be considerate of the other person and understand that they have certain weaknesses and we're not going to exercise our freedom in an area that would be perfectly legitimate because it would be a problem for them. Then the next day we, we may be out with somebody else and we may have a couple of glasses of wine and a couple of, uh, of beers or something and it, it's, it's just fine. But it's not an issue with that particular individual. So there's, in a lot of these areas, there's no certain absolute. Maybe as a family, you are trying to teach certain codes of conduct to your children. And so you may make a decision not to watch certain kinds of television television not to have cable in your home. Maybe you make a decision not to even have a television in your home, and that may be the the way in which you are going to teach certain values to your children. And then when they are in their teenage years, in order to train them because you know it's not going to be long before they leave the home and they're going to be exposed to all of these things, then you may get a television and begin to teach them and train them how to exercise discernment and judgment in terms of the entertainment that they watch or the entertainment that they're exposed to. And so different circumstances will call upon you to make or apply the word in different, uh, in different ways. There's not an absolute right or, or wrong. Basic principles, are, there are four basic rules or laws that are identified in the Scripture. The first is the law of love. This is what overrules everything there's a law of of love it's a spiritual law based on consideration for others completely, but in this context for immature believers. It is uh, based on the idea that we are to love others as Christ has loved us in john thirteen thirty four and thirty five and so just as we serve the Lord, we are to be considerate of others and considerate of their views, their opinions, their ideas. And if they are an untaught, uh, immature believer, then we need to be sensitive to that. Uh, there may be someone who's an immature believer, and they haven't really worked through the issue on something, for example, like whether or not they're going to uh, drink wine or drink alcohol. And if they see you as a mature believer, do it. Then they're going to justify, and what they end up doing is abusing it. And so we need to think through some of some of these particular issues. But I think we we can go too far with that. You go out to a restaurant, you sit down, you're going to have good good uh, Mexican food, and you decide you want to have a really good negro modelo or dos equis with your Mexican food. And so you go ahead and do that and you can't be worried about somebody you hardly even know that may just pass through the restaurant and see you sitting there drinking a beer and then that justifies them going out on a, on a, a bender and uh, getting drunk for weeks at a time. That's not what it means to put a stumbling block in front of somebody. Somebody can look at any of us at any time in our lives and use something we do possibly as a justification, that they're using it as a justification wrongly for their sin. Putting a stumbling block in front of somebody is something much more active. It is when if I were to go out to dinner with somebody and I know that they had a problem with alcohol and I ordered them a beer... Or if I'm going out to dinner with somebody and I know they're trying to lose weight and they're on a diet, I'm not going to order apple pie and ice cream for them uh, for dessert without them knowing about it. I had that happen to me recently. Um, You're not going to put something in front of them that's going to cause them to, to stumble. You're not going to knowingly do that. Uh, several years ago, I, I use that example of a Mexican restaurant and a beer because I went out with a, uh, with Morris Proctor one day. Uh, he and we, they were, we were doing a Lagos seminar here and um, Mo and Cindy had flown in and uh, he's a vegetarian so we went to a Mexican restaurant because they said they could find something to eat there. So we did that and I ordered whatever it was I ordered and I ordered a beer with it because I think nothing is better than a beer and Mexican food. And so we sat there, and word got back to me three or four months later that without mentioning any names, he was actually using that as an illustration of exactly how Christians should handle these areas of doubtful things. That one of his assistants is a guy who's been very much involved with this ministry for for many, many years now. Almost since the, since the inception. And so he told me, he said, Mo was so excited. He came back and said, you know, everybody sits there, they want to have a beer, and they say, is that going to offend you? Is that going to bother you? And they're, they're so obsequious about it. They're so, they lack so much confidence in what they're going to do. He said, Robbie just ordered beer like he was ordering a glass of of water. And that's just how the body of Christ should function. And so I just thought, well, that was interesting. I hadn't heard that perspective before. But we need to be sensitive to others that are mature. See, I looked at Morris uh, from what I knew of him. He was a mature believer. He wasn't legalistic. So I didn't, didn't think this would be something that would be a problem. Now, if I were out with somebody else that I didn't know, then I would probably not have done that just uh, so I wouldn't create an issue when there really wasn't an issue. So that's how the law of love operates. Now the second law is the law, law of liberty. This is a spiritual law directed towards oneself that expresses the believer's freedom to glorify God. Galatians six one says it is our five one. Excuse me. Galatians five one says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We are free from the law. We are no longer under the dietary laws and other restrictions that were part of the Mosaic law. There are no rules of conduct in the New Testament for what we can eat or what we can drink. Everything it can be sanctified to the Lord according to Scripture. So we have the right to participate in any activity that is not specifically sinful and that does not violate uh any of the mandates, either the prohibitions or the positive commands of Scripture, and won't cause a spiritual failure in our own life. We're, we have that freedom. But we're not to use that freedom to the degree to where it could cause a problem for another believer. So there's a balance there. The law of expediency then uh, emphasizes consideration uh, for the unbeliever. A believer may refrain from certain doubtful activities, not because they're sinful, but because they may mislead or offend an unbeliever and prevent him from recognizing the true issue of the gospel, that Christ died for his sins. So let's say I were going to the home of an Orthodox Jew for dinner. I am going to refrain from exercising my freedom to eat whatever I want to, Uh, so that I will not create an issue that would distract from the gospel. So we have to be careful there. We don't want to create issues that distract from the truth. And then the last law is the law of personal sacrifice, which is the principle directed toward God that involves the abandonment of a completely legitimate function in life in order to more intensely serve the Lord in a specialized capacity. Uh, Paul talked about this using the illustration of a wife. The other apostles, he said, all have wives, but I don't. He exercised his option to not marry so he could more intensely serve the Lord in his ministry, not that there was anything special about celibacy or remaining single, but that it just gave him the opportunity to serve the Lord to a greater degree, and so that was his choice. There are these gray areas or these non-addressed areas in Scripture where we can choose one thing, but others may choose something else. And if you're in Christian leadership sometimes, you have to make a choice and say, others can do this, but I can't. And maybe it's a completely legitimate function, but it might cause you are to weaken in other areas that might lead you into sin. So you have to come to convictions in these areas in terms of your own circumstances and your own life. Now, basically what we have to understand is that the Scripture teaches that the spiritual life doesn't operate in a vacuum. We are not autonomous. We are part of the body of Christ. We are not the body of Christ is not made up of just a bunch of individuals who live their Christian life without it impacting or affecting other Christians. There are verses like 1 Corinthians 12:27 that we are Christ's body and individually members of it. Other passages talk about the fact that we are members of one another. So we have to recognize that we are part of the body of Christ. So we can't fall a victim to this sort of individualistic idea that is, I think, a lot of Americans fall prey to because we have a history and a culture that promotes rugged individualism. I stand or fall by my decisions and what I do, and I'm going to make my life work based on my decisions and, and my efforts, and I'm not dependent upon anybody else. That's not the picture we have of the body of Christ. We have a picture in Scripture of the body of Christ where there is a interdependency in the body of Christ and that we are supposed to be a member, a participating member, in a local assembly and a local body. Now that's not possible today for some people. It used to be, uh, 30 or 40 years ago that it was, uh, more likely that you live somewhere in this country, even if you didn't get a, have a very strong Bible teaching church in your area. There was one that was acceptable. Uh, you could get additional teaching through tape recordings or things of that nature. Uh, reading to to uh, enhance what you receive at church, but it would give you an opportunity to be in part of a body of Christ and to influence that body and to minister to that body. Not just thinking that I go to church because of what I'm going to get. That's self-absorption. It's not. I'm not going to go to that church because that pastor doesn't teach me anything. See, it's all about me, 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 me. The pastor may be f- relatively uh, young believer. Uh, Maybe he doesn't know the word that well. Maybe he comes out of a background where he wasn't challenged to go beyond the ABCs in Bible teaching. And maybe if you were to get involved in that church, and I know of a couple of examples where this happened, uh, they got people who listened to me Learned this said well we 're going to try to find a church that's acceptable. found one, got involved, started teaching a Sunday school class, doing a few other things that gave them a great opportunity to minister to people in that congregation. They were still listening to me online, doing all these other things, but it gave them an opportunity to be a vital part of a body of Christ and to have an impact on them on them spiritually. But today we live in a world where apostasy in the church is is reigning supreme, and you can go to many large, even large, uh, urban areas and not find an acceptable church. And if you're in a somewhat moderate rural area, then you may really have problems. I remember when I was at Preston City, somebody heard me teach on this, and emailed me and said, "said Pastor, I live up here in Vermont. I live in a relatively small town." Uh, I have gone to every church in town, and the best church around is the congregational church. But the pastor doesn't believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. But I've been take, going there because I feel like I needed to have this example for my my children, that that I can take my son there and take him to church. And I said, don't go. You know, the you're compromising doctrine to go to a heretical church. The principle is there are some churches that may be may be very elementary, very simple, but they're right. You can go there. You don't have to uh, just say, I'm going to hide at home and listen to my MP3 player or listen online where I'm divorced from every other Christians and having an intimate uh, relationship with other believers. That's part of the body of Christ. We're members uh, of one another. So we need to Uh, be a part of a local body of Christ. We have all these passages, I've gone through these many times in the past, that talk about our relationship to one another. Romans twelve twelve ten we're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 12.16, we're to have the same mind toward one another. Romans 13.8, we're not to owe anything to another except to love one another. Uh, we're, romans fourteen thirteen we are not to judge one another anymore romans fifteen fourteen we are to admonish one another galatians five thirteen we're to serve one another uh, ephesians four twenty five we're members of one another. Ephesians 4.32, we're to be kind to one another. Ephesians uh, 5.19 says we're to speak to one another in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which is parallel to Colossians 3.16, that we're to be uh, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In first thess four eighteen, we're to comfort one another. Verses 5.11, were to encourage one another and build up one another. Uh, uh, John 15.13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his love for his friends. So you see there's this emphasis on the body of Christ and this interdependency within the body of Christ. So we don't live our spiritual life in isolation. We live it in Around other believers. So we need to be sensitive to who's a mature believer, who's not a mature believer, and if there are any issues that exist that may cause a problem for other other believers. So the, this is the background and this is the situation. Now, next time, I'm going to come back and we're going to continue through uh, Romans 13, start picking up uh, in verse 5, which is dealing with a different issue other than food, but much of what we have here is fairly simple to understand. And if we just make sure we understand the basic issue of loving one another and showing basic concern and consideration for one another, then we can easily work our way through most of these kinds of problems. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we have to think through this to realize that we live in a world today that, that, where, where often legalism is not the problem anymore, but uh, antinomianism. And in many cases, it just seems like anything goes. But we need to be sensitive to the fact that there are still uh, believers who are not sure or certain about certain kinds of conduct. And we need to understand how mature believers are to handle those kinds of situations that we might not be a cause of stumbling for an immature believer. Father, help us to understand and apply these things in Christ's name. Amen.